Our text is from Matthew 17, verse 20. If someone has that, would you stand and read it? Matter of fact, let's all stand while it's being read. Whoever finds it, read it out. <clears throat> Matthew seventeen twenty. Good. Praise the Lord. You can be seated. Faith is a mustard seed. When I was younger, there was a woman in my church that ran around with a little plastic globe with a mustard seed in it on a chain. And she would hold it out like this and say, see my faith? She wasn't expecting my answer. I said, shame on you if that's only how big your faith is. Kind of took the winds out of her sail. I says, Jesus meant that that's supposed to grow. It should be the size of the rock of Gibraltar, not encapsulated in a little uh, plastic globe. What does it mean? What did Jesus mean when he said, faith as a mustard seed? What's so special about a mustard seed? Why did he say, nothing shall be impossible to you? Can you imagine what your life would be like if nothing was impossible to you? Is it possible to reach that point in your walk with the Lord where nothing is impossible? Jesus said so. But many of us are a little short of that. And so this morning's message will be an encouragement to you and maybe to look at an old truth in some new ways. Sometimes it helps to get a better perspective on things if you change the angle you're looking at it from. Now, I'm an avid gardener. The other day I spent four and a half hours pruning one bush. Stem by stem with a hand clipper, no, no hedge trimmer, by hand. Then I curled up around the base of the tree and cut out all the dead stuff and handed it out to my wife. That filled two wheelbarrow loads just for that one bush. Then I did the other one. Then I did two more. Then I did the one out back. That was three wheelbarrow loads. I love plant life, horticulture, But you wouldn't know it earlier in my life. I had developed a severe allergy to the things I shared with you this morning. Chlorophyll, pollen, grass. Someone would mow the lawn and I'd be in agony for three hours. I remember times when I sneezed for half an hour straight and couldn't stop. My eyes were so red, the veins were full of blood. And my sockets were almost red. And I get so frustrated, I want to put my fist through a wall. And every year that would return in May, and 
around Memorial Day and last until July 4th. And every year, my body would accommodate itself to the medications, and the medicine was no good for the next year. And finally, there was one medication left. The doctor says, this is the last medication there is for your allergy. I hope it works. It was the one they had developed for the astronauts when they went to the moon. And so he prescribed it, I took it, it worked, and it worked every year after that. For 11 long years, my life was pure hell come that time of the year. And I remember one year, I got so tired of this routine of suffering, I walked down the double yellow line on my street and prayed that a cow would hit me and put me out of my misery. I said, Lord, I'm tired of my allergies. And that's when the Lord rebuked me. He said, Ron, as long as you call them your allergies, you've got them for life. And then I got mad at God. Why would he tell me that? Doesn't he want to heal me? And then the Lord began to ask some very probing questions of me. He said, Ron, why do you have allergies? Did I give them to you? I said, no. He said, did you ask for them? I said, of course not. He says, well, then where do you think they came from? I thought a minute, and I said, there's only one option left, the devil. I says, Lord, are you trying to tell me something? And then it dawned on me, I don't have to have these allergies. They're not mine. I didn't ask for them. God didn't give them to me. The devil afflicted them with me. And I have the right as a Christian to send them back. So I cried out, in the name of Jesus, Satan, I rebuke you. And I give these allergies back to you where they came from. And from that day, I never had another problem with allergies. And I'm 73. I'm 73. Would you believe that? Life goes by so fast. And the very thing I was deathly allergic to became my greatest hobby and joy in life. I love gardening. My wife and I have just finished 75 wheelbarrow loads of mulch, putting them in the various beds in our yard. That was after I edged them and after I pulled probably, what, about 12 wheelbarrow loads of weeds out of the beds. Now we put that down. Our yard is gorgeous. It's beautiful. She said this morning, wow, the yard really looks nice. We have a vegetable garden, 16 by 28 feet. And we grow our food for the year and can it and live off the veggies from our garden. We have a secret way of gardening. I can share it with you after service. But here's the thought. Life is full of ironies. The thing I was allergic to became a hobby. And I've been an avid gardener now for over 50 years. This morning's message is about spiritual gardening. It has to do with how the Lord answers our prayers and provides for us in the midst of life's trials and impossible situations. The second text this morning is from Mark chapter 4, verses 26 through 29. And I'll read those. 
Jesus said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground and should sleep by night and rise by day, and the seed should sprout and grow. He himself does not know how. For the earth yields crops by itself, first the blade, then the head, after that the full grain in the head. But when the grain ripens, immediately he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. In the chapter 4 of Mark, Jesus taught three parables. Verses 1 through 20, he taught the parable of the seed and the sower. In verses 21 through 25, he taught the parable of the lamp and the light. And now Jesus is teaching the parable of the seed growing in secret in the text that I've just read. It's this parable that I want to share with you this morning as the Holy Spirit opens it up to your understanding. And as I progress, the sermon will answer questions like these. How does a seed relate to the kingdom of God? How does a seed grow while we sleep? How come we don't, don't know exactly how a seed works? How does the blade, the head, and full grain process affect our lives? And how is the harvest from the seed guaranteed by God to ripen? In this parable, we'll discover the mystery of how the seed of God's word, growing secretly in our hearts by faith, comes to pass. So what's the big picture concerning this small parable? What does Jesus want us to take away when we leave this sanctuary today? And most importantly, what difference will this parable make in your personal life and your walk with Jesus this week and every day and every week after this? This parable is only found in the book of Mark. Something touched Mark concerning this parable. It was something he experienced. None of the other gospel writers wrote on this parable. In the book of Acts, Paul and Barnabas had a difference of opinion concerning Mark. You remember that. Paul felt that Mark was wavering in his call to the ministry. And so Paul judged this weakness in Mark's character. And as a result, Mark turned back while he was at Pamphylia. The contention between Paul and Barnabas concerning Mark was so great, they actually parted ways, as Paul felt that Mark was not fit for the ministry. And so Paul took Silas with him on a missionary journey, but Barnabas, good old Barnabas, the encourager, he took Mark on a separate missionary journey. And ironically, later in Scripture, we find Paul saying to Timothy, Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to, useful to me for ministry. Mark did grow. He did become proficient in ministry. He became a powerful man of God. Paul was just impatient. And so Mark must have thought about the patience Barnabas had shown toward him and remembered this parable of the seed growing in secret and included it in his gospel. After all, Mark was a living illustration how, 
important this parable really is when it comes to having the fruit of patience in our lives. Through this parable, Jesus reassures us that we'll eventually reap if we do not lose heart. It shows us four spiritual secrets concerning faith, and these are what I want to share with you. Let's look at them one by one. To begin with, we need faith for planting. If you don't plant something, you don't get anything. That's the first rule of the harvest. There's ten laws of the harvest. How many know that in Scripture? The first one is you have to plant if you want to harvest. So the first thing the farmer does in the spring after he turns down the ground is, turns over the ground, he plants the seeds. I went by a field that had just been freshly plowed. The seeds had been put in. And there were little corn stalks that big <laughs> sticking up out of the ground. It says they're on their way. And you know the rule of corn. It's got to be knee high by the 4th of July. That's the old saying. And so... The kingdom of God, in verse 26, is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. The seed that is sown in this parable is a type of the word of God. And Jesus wants you this morning to believe that when you plant his word in your heart and in your circumstances, there will be results. There's no such thing as no results with Jesus. You plant the right seeds, there will be a harvest. That's the good news. Amen? I've lived long enough to know this is true. <laughs> when you're young, you're not sure. But the older you grow, you see the cycles of life, and you know, I remember the prayer I prayed. It came to pass. I like in the scripture where it says, and it came to pass. <laughs> In your trials, it comes to pass. <laughs> Jesus said, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit. And so fruit bearing is possible through the power of Scripture. Jesus wants you to understand this morning that you must believe God's power is always at work in your life and in your circumstances through the word of God, the scripture says, which lives and abides forever. But first, you must plant the word of God in your heart. And that can't take place if you don't open your Bible and read it each day. For faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Not only must the seed be sown, the seed of God's word, but the seed of God's word must be planted, rooted, anchored in. There are ten benefits to planting God's word in your heart, and they're on the worksheet. You can fill them in as we go. The first benefit, it keeps you from sin. David said, your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. The second benefit is that strengthens you inwardly. In Psalm 119.28, my soul melts from heaviness. Strengthen me according to your word. The third benefit, it comforts you when you're mourning or when you're down. And David said in Psalm 119.50, this is my comfort in my affliction, for your word has given me life. 
The fourth benefit, it encourages obedience. Before I was afflicted, David said, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Why? Because he committed it to his heart and to his memory. That's Psalm 119.67. The fifth benefit, it produces boldness. Let my heart be blameless regarding your statutes, that I may not be ashamed, and that word means confused. Psalm 119.80. God doesn't want you confused when it comes to the issues of life. Keep your heart with all diligence, Solomon wrote, for out of it are the issues of life. Put the word of God in your heart, because that's where the issues of life are dealt from. Benefit number six, it will sustain you during trials. In Psalm 119.92, David said, unless your law had been my delight, I would have then perished in my afflictions. Notice how we're drawn to God's word more when we're having a hard time than when things are easy. Because we're looking for answers. Trials of life are not an enemy. They're a means to an end that God allows for us to grow spiritually, to learn uh, kingdom principles, and to walk wisely before God, our maker. The seventh benefit, it makes you wise. In Psalm 119, 98, David said, you through your commandments make me wiser than my enemies. I believe God's people are wiser than the people that are worldly. Because they only look for the here and now. But we have a home in heaven made without hands. And we look to that. People invest in the stock market. But our investments are in heaven. So we lay up our treasures not on earth, but in heaven. Benefit number eight. Through your precepts I get understanding. Therefore I hate every false way. It gives us understanding. If you don't know something, you can't know it unless you are taught it and it enters into your understanding. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of quick understanding. I remember a time on the job for 11 years after God called me to the ministry, I was like Jonah. I ran the other way. I'd seen how people treated my pastor. I said, no way, God, am I going to volunteer for that kind of a whipping. I'm not getting beaten up in a pulpit. I remember business meetings in my home church where people came to fist blows. Real spiritual, huh? <laughs> So for 11 years I ran. I was a machine designer, good at what I did. I made astronomical money. I was gifted, and I still am, in mechanical things. I can fix mechanical stuff, and most people would throw it in the trash. I was in the drafting room one day, working on engineering drawings, and the Lord came and said, Ron, what are you doing? I said, I'm building a machine. And Jesus said, how long do you think that'll last? I said, oh, at least 60 years. And then Jesus said, what's that in the light of eternity? I said, probably not very much, huh? And then Jesus said, how would you like to do something that'll last forever and ever and ever throughout all eternity? And he had me. 
he got my curiosity. I says, what? He says, I want you to answer the call to the ministry that I placed on you. I have work for you to do. And there in that engineering drafting room, no windows, I bowed my head and committed my life to the ministry. I remember the entire next month driving into Boston on the Southeast Distressway, I'm sorry, Expressway. I'd look to the right and see a woman driving a lane next to me and the Holy Spirit would whisper to me, unless someone tells her about Jesus, she will go to hell. She's not saved. And I begin to sob and weep, tears just rolling down my face. Then I'd look to the left, I'd see a guy driving and the Holy Spirit would say, unless someone tells him about Jesus, he will spend eternity in a lake of fire. And I'd sob again. And for a month, I wept my way to work and I wept my way home as God laid on me the burden of the call for the ministry. I've always been a pastor that loves to lead people to the Lord. We pastored a church in the Bronx that grew to 450 people. And by the grace of God, we were able to lead 450 people to Jesus in four and a half years. Wow, that would pack this out what? At least twice, maybe three times in four years? Is that possible? Absolutely. Absolutely. But we got to get our minds on the right track. Get the right understandings of what life is about. Get our values lined up with God's set of values. And know that the greatest thing that God is concerned with is not my selfish wants, but the salvation of the lost. Jesus wants people to be saved and go to heaven. That's his number one concern. That's why he came to earth. That's why he conducted a three-year ministry. That's why he trained 12 disciples. And that's why he died on a rugged cross. That's the first and foremost mission of the church is to win the lost. I challenge you to be soul winners and to be a soul winning church. God can fill these pews. It's not hard. It's not hard. We saw it happen. I remember when I candidated for that church, the people on the church board said, Pastor, we don't want to get you to get your hopes up. This is the Bronx. People don't get saved here. They don't want God. We just hang on and try to exist. And I said, you're wrong. And on Sunday morning, I preached a message on the three crosses of Golgotha. Gave an altar call, and 17 people came forward to get saved. And every Sunday for four and a half years, except for two Sundays I can remember, people came forward to get saved. Because I made a contract with the church. If you will bring your loved ones, if you'll bring your neighbors, if you'll bring the drunk on the street, if you'll bring in the prostitutes, if you'll bring in the thieves, if you'll bring in the lost, there will be an altar call for them to get saved every Sunday. Every time I stand in this pulpit, I will give an altar call for the lost. 
Didn't matter what I was preaching. I wove it in at the end to the theme of salvation. Always gave three altar calls. Number one, for those that need Jesus Christ as their Savior. Number two, for those that needed to respond to the message God had me preach that day. Then number three, I would call the whole church up and say, come on, let's enter in. Let's worship the Lord. Let's pray for these that have gathered around the altar. And the power of God would come down. You can't believe the things that would take place. We see people being baptized in the Holy Spirit around the altar. People that are saved. I, I had a gang member got saved one Sunday morning in the Bronx. <laughs> and my elders were fit to be tied. He stood about like this. And have to realize the sanctuary was 90 feet wide by 60 feet deep. And it sat over 500 people. And from this edge, he did backflips all the way across the sanctuary, shouting, I'm saved, I'm saved, whoop, 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 whoop. Just joy. The elder leaned over to me and said, Pastor, this isn't good. I said, no, this is good. (laughs) This is very good. A gang member got saved in service this morning. Leave him alone. (laughs) Amen? I don't know why I got off on that tangent. Let me get back. Benefit number nine. It gives you light for your pathway. In Psalm 119, 130, David said, The entrance of your word gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. Understanding to the simple. And the final benefit, number 10, it produces peace in your heart. David said in Psalm 119, 165, great peace have those who love your law and nothing causes them to stumble. And so we need uh, faith to plant the word of God in our souls, on a daily basis, to be in the Word, to memorize, to meditate on it, to take it in. Let the Holy Spirit change our understandings and our thoughts, our attitudes, and our goals in life until we line up with what God wants of our life. You see, for 11 years, I thought I was doing what was right in my life, but I was running from God. And once God got a hold of me and I said yes, look at how many people God has used me to bring to salvation over the years. Every church I've ever pastored, we've had people saved because I challenged the church to be soul winners. You need faith for planting. Secret number two, you need faith for perception. In verse 27 of the text, if a man should sleep by night and rise by day, the seed should spring and grow, he himself does not know. Meaning, doesn't know how it happens. What a powerful revelation from God's word. On the one hand, this parable recognizes sowing, planting the seed. On the other hand, it also recognizes harvesting. But the parable's central issue is about the secret process that takes place between sowing and reaping.
My garden has no weeds in it. I don't have to water it. It waters itself. I'm sorry, it had one weed in it this morning. I'll pull that this afternoon. It's that big. And all my bean seeds are in nice straight rows spaced evenly apart. The carrots are starting up. The beets are starting up. The tomatoes are starting to grow. The bushes. And I will eat for a year off of the produce from that garden. Have another bed with spinach and uh, what is it? Now, elephant garlic. How many know what that is? That's garlic that grows the size of a baseball, a softball. Has about five cloves in it. So you can imagine the size of the cloves. They're like that, about that big around. We crush those up, put them in a jar with olive oil. That's our cloves for the year. Everything is coming up. But there was a point when all the seeds were in the ground. I would look out each day and say, are they up yet? Are they up yet? Lord, protect my garden from the deer. Lord, protect my garden from the rabbit. And God has blessed me with a dumb rabbit. Really. The rabbit goes in my garden and sleeps in my garden then crawls out of the garden to eat grass. Walks right by my row of carrots. Good rabbit. <laughs> Between sowing and reaping, there's an unseen process that has to take place when the seed is planted and can't be seen. This parable is saying that you can live without anxiety. It talks about the man sleeping by night and rising by day. He doesn't have any trouble sleeping. He's not worrying and fretting. He's planted the seed and he can't see what's going on, but he's not concerned because he trusts the process. And so the farmer goes to bed, has a great night's sleep, and something is happening under the earth to those seeds and they're beginning to put out little roots, beginning to put out a neck, beginning to get ready to poke through the dirt, and he still can't see anything, but he knows <coughs> the process works. How many know this morning prayer works? Amen? Prayer works. Our only job is to sow the word in prayer by faith, <coughs> then to continue on with our ordinary duties of life. We'll sleep well at night knowing that we've sown God's word, not some damaged seed. And we can get up with joy in the morning believing that the word we sowed is producing results even if we can't see them. Never fret over whether or not God is at work in your life and your circumstances once you have prayed over them. You may not be able to see what's going on, but God is at work. This parable also says you can live with joyful expectations <coughs> in life. It talks about the seed <coughs> sprouting, then growing. 
<clears throat> Why is it that children of God can be so joyful? Because while you're living out your daily life, something is going on in your circumstances because you planted God's word. The power of God is being released through the seed of his word that you planted in the soil of the impossible. And as God's word causes you to grow spiritually, it is also transforming you into the image of Christ and giving you every reason to have joy unspeakable and full of glory. The parable also says you can live without all the answers. You don't have to have all the answers up front in order to have faith that God will work on your problems. If you plant the word in prayer by faith, your faith is that God is working on my problem. I can't see what he's doing yet, but I know he's working on my problem. And when you begin to have that kind of a thought, that kind of an understanding, that kind of an attitude, it brings a peace within that says, it's going to sprout. It's going to come up. The answer's on the way. Faith is the, is the substance of things hoped for. The substance means it's the issues we're dealing with that we hope will be answered because we prayed as the evidence of things not seen. What's the evidence that your prayer is going to be answered? Is it not the fact that God's working in secret on your problems is parallel to the planting of a seed and what goes on under the ground unseen? And then at the right time, the results show up. If it works in the natural realm, why would it not work in the spiritual realm? If God created the seed and works in secret and brings forth a crop, if we plant our seed of the word by faith and prayer, then will not God work unseen on our problems and bring to pass a glorious response and answer to our prayers? It's directly parallel. That's what I love about gardening. It teaches me so many things about spiritual truths, including patience, You can live without all the answers. The guy that planted the seeds, the farmer, he didn't, let, he didn't stay up all night fretting. He said, I know this process. I've done this for 40 years. It's the same every year. God created everything after its kind with the seed in it. And you, if you plant an apple seed, you're not going to get a pear tree. If you plant an orange tree, you're not going to get brambles and thorns. Everything reproduces after its kind. The Word of God reproduces after the will of God so that His will can be brought forth in answered prayer. That's how it works. It's that simple. And we make prayers so complicated. I hope God answers my prayer. No, no, no. 
I'm glad God is going to answer my prayer because he has shown me that it is his will. And if it is his will, he will work in secret and there will be a harvest. I love that, don't you? You see? We should be the most relaxed people on the face of the earth. Loose as a goose. Hey, God's at work. <laughs> Pastor of the church I'm at, the presbyter for this section, asked me to share a couple of weeks on tithing. I have to tell you something. <clears throat> My wife and I are tithers. We pay our tithes. First thing when money comes in the house, the tithe gets taken out, put in an envelope. That's God's. Then God takes care of us. <clears throat> you know what my budget is on a monthly basis? I get $1,000 less for Social Security than my brother. He gets the maximum. My wife gets half of what I get. She doesn't get the full amount we could have had Right now, my budget is minus $100 to $150 a month. So I have to pray in $100 to $150 a month. I have a computer. Microsoft just announced we're going to kill Windows 7 by January 20th. And you're not going to have a computer. And I prayed and said, Lord, I've paid my tithes. You said you would provide my need, and that is a need, Lord. I don't ask for a fancy computer, but Lord, you know I need one. I prayed and left it in God's hands. And he's working, he worked in secret. <clears throat> My grandson <laughs> builds computers on the side just to make money. He works for Walmart, builds computers on the side. He built a $3,000 supercomputer. Boots up in three seconds flat. I'll tell you, I've never seen anything like that in my life. And he just graduated, and his father, my son said to him, uh, uh, his father, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pay for a new computer for you. So he, he told his father what it would cost. His father said, here's $2,000, go build your computer. He built a $4,500 computer, because he did all the labor. <laughs> and then the, uh, my son said to him, what are you going to do with the old one? He says, I don't know. I hadn't thought about that. Then he told them about my need. And my grandson said, give it to Grandpa. So my son drove it all the way out to my house, spent a week with me, took a week to set it up, convert everything over. I have a $3,000 supercomputer, free. Talk about answered prayer. It just blows my mind how God provides. My wife and I were in a car accident just about a year ago, last June 20th. We got hit at 70 miles an hour on the side of the car, the front left wheel, spun us around, broke both our backs. I had a broken neck, broken back, uh, broken clavicle, damaged shoulder, ribs busted up the left side, I had a damaged spleen and a severe concussion. My wife had a broken back. Her surgery was billed at $420,000 to put her back together. 
with two long metal rods. Our insurance coverage was 125000 apiece. What do you do when you end up like that? The insurance company called me and said, Ron, you have <coughs> a million-dollar umbrella policy over your auto insurance, but it won't kick in for 18 months. I said, then I have no choice. I have to file bankruptcy. I can't pay these bills. The woman said, I'll call you back. Two days later, she called back, and she's crying on the phone. She says, Mr. Korsanowski, she's sobbing. I have great news for you. I says, I need some good news. She says, we went up the corporate ladder all the way to the top, and everyone has agreed. We're going to kick in your million-dollar umbrella immediately. You will never pay a cent for this accident. And they paid every single bill. Our bills are over $650,000. We still have a few more to go. And they left it open until December 20th with an official letter and then said, if you need any more, in January 1st of 2000, we'll add another 50000 apiece onto you. Who, what insurance company does that? But see, God took care of it. We limit God for what he's able to do because we think of what we're able to do and think God will do just a little more. He does exceeding abundantly above what we're able to ask or think. Oh, we're going to be here a while. I'm sorry. How many have ever prayed, Lord, I have this bill or this situation. Would you meet my need? Put your hand up. It's not a biblical prayer. Scripture doesn't teach that God will meet your exact need. Give and it shall be given unto you a full measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over. When you give, God wants to give back more than what you gave. If God only gives you enough to meet your need, how would you ever be used by God to meet someone else's need? Hello? Jesus fed 5,000 men. <clears throat> the wives are probably there and the kids, so scholars believe it was actually 12,000 people that Jesus fed. How many baskets were left over? 12. And afterwards, Jesus gets in a boat with the 12 disciples, they're heading across the lake, the disciples Stomachs are rumbling and they're murmuring, we don't have any bread. And Jesus says, how is it you have no bread? Were there not 12 baskets left over? Those were for you guys. Why did you leave them on the shore? Those were surplus to take care of this need. Jesus didn't make just enough to feed the multitude. He made more. When you pray, pray this prayer. Lord, meet my need and provide more so I can be your vessel to touch someone else's life. That's scriptural. If we're only self-centered and conscious of our needs, never consider the needs of others, never pray for those needs and say, Lord, make me a resource 
to be able to meet that need? Lord, just meet this need exactly, and I give you all the honor and glory and the praise. And how is God going to touch the lives of others if we're broke? Hello. I'm not, you can't put me in a box. I don't fit. I never got to go to Bible school. The Holy Spirit's been my teacher since I was 30 years old. I've been preaching since I was 19. You don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to know the next thing God's going to do. You don't have to see A through Z to believe. Just say, Lord, here it is. I put it in your hands. You're the one that's going to take care of it. And I praise you and I thank you for the answer that's going to come. Because it will come. When you plant, there will be a harvest. You may not understand the process by which God supernaturally changes you in the process. But you are guaranteed that he will change you. And over time, God's word will continually conform you to the image of Jesus Christ. Some of you have unsaved family, friends, and relatives. And like the man in the parable, you don't know how God is going to save them. But be encouraged. The seed of the gospel that you sow will spring up and grow, though you do not know how. So don't give up or lose courage. Secret number three, you, you need faith for patience. The earth yields crops by itself. First the blade, then the head. After that, the full grain in the head. Here are three facts you must understand. Number one, you cannot produce the harvest. You cannot produce the end result. If you could, then you wouldn't need God and you wouldn't need to pray. But the fact that you can't, that you need God and you do pray, means that God will produce the harvest. <clears throat> Nature cannot sow or reap. If I toss a bag of beans in the middle of my garden, nothing will ever happen. My garden can't plant the beans, and it can't harvest what grows from beans when I do plant them. Therefore, we have our part in responsibility, and we must trust God to do his part. Our part is to pray and believe. His part is to work in secret and answer our prayers. And this requires patience in stages. In gardening, there's germination, then growth, then maturity, and then harvest. Do you know the answers to questions like these? How does Satan discourage believers who expect to see results too soon? How do older believers often discourage younger Christians by not understanding the process of the blade, the head, and then the full grain? Why is it some Christians can't keep their hands off other believers and leave them alone while God is growing them. James said, therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits, waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and the latter rain. Here's another law of the harvest. You reap in a different season than when you sow. I planted my seeds in May, 
and most of what I harvest will be in August. I plant in the spring and I reap in the summer. Corn is planted in May and is reaped from August through the end of September. How about prayer? Prayer is a seasonal in nature. You pray in one season, and sometimes it takes God one season more or several seasons before the answer comes. Because in order to answer, he has to deal with people that he's going to use to meet your need or to produce the result of your prayer. That person may be stubborn saying, no, I won't do it, God. God has to let them experience what you're experiencing until they say, yeah, okay, I will. Now they come back. Time is involved. From one season to another, this takes place. These are the cycles. There are cycles of life. We begin our schooling in one season of life and graduate in a different season of life. We get engaged in one season and get married in a different season. We bear children in one season and send them to college in a different season of life. We begin our careers in one season and retire in a different season. We're born in one season of life and we die in a different season of life. Life is about seasons. And prayer can be about seasons. We're so used to having what we want when we want to push a button, boink, there it is on the screen. I want a soda, drop in the money, there's my can. Prayer doesn't work that way all the time. Sometimes it does. Ask and you should receive. Boink, there it is. Oh. But if you can't boink the button, what happens next? <laughs> See? Ask and you shall receive. Seek now. Because pushing the button didn't work. And you shall find. Find what? Find some things about your life that are in tune with how God wants to deal with your needs. And then once that's done, there's some knocking to do. And it should be open to you. Process. And that can go from one season to another or two or three or four, depending on what we're bringing before the Lord for prayer. And it requires great patience. So God's grace at work in our hearts is a gradual process. So we need to be patient with God, patient with ourselves, and patient with others around us. <clears throat> if you light a candle <clears throat> and try to move it too fast, what happens? The flame will blow out, won't it? So you light a candle and it teaches you patience. You've got to walk slow so the flame won't go out. You see? A fire that's about to go out can be revived by a gentle breath. But if you blow hard, it'll blow the fire out. A small plant can be drowned with too much watering. A beautiful flower can be destroyed by exposing the full heat of the sun at noontime. Nature teaches us that life has its cycles and prayer has its cycles. So we need patience. And we need our faith for that patience. Finally this morning, we need faith for picking. The harvest phase, that's the fun phase, isn't it? That's the fun part of the cycle. When the grain ripens immediately, the farmer puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. 
While you're busy with life, <clears throat> after you've prayed, God is preparing a harvest in your life. Right now, God is preparing a harvest in your life. Based on the prayers you have prayed, every prayer, according to the will of God, will bear a harvest. And God is sometimes working on more than one harvest in your life at a time. He's working in secret. But for every prayer you pray that is within the will of God, there will be a harvest. Ooh, I like that, don't you? And God is always working on your harvests, plural, to bring them forth. He's growing and producing a crop to harvest from the seed you faithfully sowed from his word in prayer. But in the process, you must believe that every seed you sow will produce results. Believe that your labors are not in vain in the Lord. Believe that the harvest will come. But believe that you'll reap this harvest at God's appointed time. And believe that nothing you plant by faith will fail to come to maturity and to final harvest. Yes, you need faith for picking. Let me bring this to a conclusion. Let me leave you with three thoughts. Number one, purpose in your heart to sow good seed. There are all kinds of seeds that can be planted in a garden. Technically, I can plant weed seeds by just not pulling the weeds. But that wouldn't make much of a garden, would it? Refuse to compromise the pure teachings of God's word. Keep the seed pure. Refuse to contaminate God's word with worldly methods. You can't plant the way the world plants and expect a godly harvest. Refuse to allow politics to pollute the church you attend. Now, I'm sure there's no politics here. But if there were, root them out. They have no place in the house of God. And always believe in the power of the word to do, of God to do its job. Thought number two. Trust the Lord to grow the seed you sow. He's at work, even when you cannot see him working. Believe that your prayers will come to pass according to his perfect will and in his perfect timing. And refuse to doubt this parable of the seed growing secretly. That's why Jesus taught us, so that we would have deep assurances in our soul that when I pray by faith, according to the word of God, according to the will of God, there is going to be a harvest. It's not maybe, it's not if, there will be a harvest every time. Allow prayer, fasting, giving, loving, serving, and evangelism to motivate you. Allow nothing to deter you from the vision of reaching your community for Christ. Allow God to bless you, break you, and distribute you to the lost, the needy, the hurting, the oppressed, and the dying. If you do these things and apply the principle of the seed growing in secret, you're going to have a wonderful life and a wonderful church filled with new converts and the joy of the Lord. Weeping may endure for the night, but joy does come in the morning. Amen? Let me leave you with a wonderful promise from God's word. It's from Habakkuk 2, verse 3. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it will speak and it will not lie. 
Though it tarries, wait for it, because it will surely come. Amen. How exciting, that confirmation from God's word. I'd like to ask you to stand with me this morning, if you would. I could give an altar call, and I don't feel to do that this morning. But I do feel to call the whole church forward. If you would come, would you come and just fill in around the altar here this morning? I don't know what time it is. Maybe I preach past 12 noon. I don't know. But God is here. His word has been shared. And I believe he wants to touch us this morning. And to deepen the assurances that this message has brought to your heart. And if we can do that, let the Lord touch us, then we're going to be in good shape for this week ahead. Amen? Praise the Lord.